the Mini Brick, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, June 26th. On today's show, I want to discuss what we learned from week two of the 2023 grass court season. Of course, the start of Wimbledon is one week away. As such, every opportunity we have to see any of these top players compete on a grass court. It is a valuable data point for all of us as we try to prepare to forecast what we expect to see at the year's third major. And by the way, before we get into today's show, it is Wimbledon Preview Week here at Crack Rackets. We will look at every aspect of the year's third major this week on our Great Shot podcast feed. That means breaking down the dark horses. That means breaking down the top contenders. That means breaking down All the Americans will see compete in both the men's and women's singles draws. Of course, once those draws come out, we'll have extensive previews of each of them as well. It will be myself and a cast of characters, a cast of our Crack Rackets friends throughout the week. If you are looking for Wimbledon preview content, the Great Shot podcast feed will be the place for you again. This week here on this show, we're going to focus on the tour level action as we still do have a bunch of top players in the world get and a few more grass court repetitions under their belt prior to the start of Wimbledon. So, again, all of that Wimbledon preview content, it will be housed on our Great Shot podcast feed. You can find that Great Shot podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, or you can find the link to every episode on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, I'll try to make sure our Cracked Interviews podcast is rocking and rolling as well. I've sent out a couple of texts to some top 100 players. Hopefully, one of them takes the bait and will be willing to come on our show here this week. So, of course, all of our podcasts rocking and rolling, not just just those three, but of course, with the resumption of the Netflix docuseries Breakpoint comes the resumption of our podcast, The Breakpoint Show. Myself, Gil Gross, breaking down every episode of the Netflix docuseries. You can find that wherever you listen to your podcast, or you can go watch Gil and I have the discussions on Gil's YouTube channel. Busy times here at Crack Rackets, reflective of the busy times in the tennis world, and we know it's our job here to make sure you remain the most well-informed, best-educated fans in the the business. Again, this podcast, Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, The Breakpoint Show. We're rocking and rolling, firing on all cylinders. You can find those shows wherever you listen to your podcast, like, rate, subscribe. Subscribe is how you say that word. Leave it in or review. Share it with your friends. Uh, Of course, you can find the link to everything as well by following us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Cracked Rackets. You can follow me directly. I like to post the links as well, at A.L. Gruskin on Twitter. That's all the content we've got coming for you this week. The content here today, again, focused on an exciting championship weekend on the ATP and WTA tours. And with that central theme of this show, what did we learn here in week number two? Well, let me tell you here before we get into our deep dive. We certainly learned that it doesn't really matter what surface we're playing on. Carlos Alcaraz, he's really freaking good at tennis. As Alcaraz earns his first grass court title of his career. Of course, it was his first non-Wimbledon grass court event. Speaks to the prowess of the young Spaniard. He dropped his opening set of the tournament did not drop a set the rest of the way. He cruises to the title at Queen's Club. I want to break down what makes Alcaraz so successful on this surface, what we learned from the rest of the field that competed at Queen's Club. It wasn't just Alcaraz, but I do think guys like Demon Hour, obviously the Holgarunas of the world, even a healthy Sebastian Corda. Those were your semifinalists. Obviously, they're going to look good as they continue to win throughout the course of the week. But how seriously should we take their weeks as we approach the year third major? We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the fact that we continue to learn that Petra Kvitova went healthy. She can look like a top 10, dare I say top 5, dare I say best player in the world, particularly on this surface where her aggressive game style is just emphasized and accentuated so well and I mean, she was excellent on her way to the title in Berlin. Obviously, they had a tricky, had to play the quarterfinal semifinals on the same day on Saturday situation, given the rain on Friday. Didn't matter for Kvitova. She looked good all weekend long, looked particularly impressive in her first set on her way to a straight set victory in the final over Donna Vekic. Want to break down again what allowed Kvitova to have success. And, you know, again, not just her, but Vekic, Sakari, Ekaterina Alexandrova, the rest of 
the quarterfinalists who reached, uh, excuse me, the rest of the players who reached the quarterfinals in Berlin. What did we learn about them heading into the 2023 Wimbledon? We'll explore that. We'll head to London, talk about one of those weeks for Sasha Bublik. He's always had the talent. And what did we learn? It's that if he wanted to put it together, he certainly appears to be able to do so now. This surface, again, perfectly suited for his game style, or his game style, I should say, perfectly suited for the surface. I don't know. Does the surface adjust to Bublik, or does Bublik adjust to the surface? Is there no adjustment either way? The world may never know. That said, we do know Sasha Bublik's an ATP 500 champion. Knocks off Rublev in the final. He's really good. He takes rhythm away. When he finds the motivation, when he finds the focus, he has this level. And so how seriously do we take it? I guess we'll discuss that here on this show, discuss everyone else who looked pretty solid on the grounds in hollow throughout the course of championship weekend as well. And then speaking of, you know, ups and downs, I will continue to ride the take that Yelena Ostapenko is playing the best tennis of her career here in 2023. And there are always going to be ups and downs in the Yelena Ostapenko experience, but it's the third straight year she's had a significant run on a grass court prior to the start of Wimbledon and in an era where, again, the sample size to turn to for so many of these top contenders on this surface particularly is so minimal it matters that Ostapenko has continued success, and we'll discuss to what extent it matters. What did we learn? What should we take from another stellar Ostapenko week? Should we read into Krechikova reaching her first final on this surface? Plenty of storylines coming out of the past week. I mean, it always helps to have three 500-level events on the calendar, and then a 250 that has an ostapenko Krechikova final, two top 20 players in the world. But guess what? That's what we were dealt, so that's what we're going to discuss here on today's show. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you listeners and, of course, because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products. By the way, it's going to be another two-mini-break podcast Monday as I not only want to break down what happened over the course of the past weekend, but given it is the... Well, it's not the penultimate week. It's the final week prior to the start of Wimbledon. I want to preview this week's events. I want you all to know what you need to be watching, not just at Wimbledon qualifying, but at the tour level events, because there are still some top players in the world competing this week. And I know typically the week before a major, it's a calm before the storm. I always associate the week before a major with New Haven, which was the event at Yale for many, many years, a WTA event prior to the start of the U.S. Open. It just felt like late August, you're getting ready to go back to school, or maybe for me, I'm cramming my summer homework in and the TV would be on in the background and New Haven was always on ESPN. So I felt like I always watched that event prior to the start of the U.S. Open, you know, last week of the summer. I mean, we always saw Patrick Kvitova in New Haven, but those draws were not typically loaded. There's more top players playing this week than you would typically associate with the week before major because, again, grass court opportunities are few and far between. Many players went deep at the French Open, needed a couple of weeks of rest, but still want to get a few matches under their belt before, you know, trying to tame the monster that is the Wimbledon grass courts. Anyways, too many break podcast Monday. It's going to be a fun day here at Cracked Rackets. I think we already have two great shot podcasts out today as well. Myself, John J. Parsons, breaking down all of the players with college tennis ties, having success in the pros. Damian Kust, Jakob Babro, breaking down all of the challenger action from the past weekend, previewing the upcoming Wimbledon qualifying. So again, This is the week here at Cracked Rackets. We are fully back. We are fully locked, fully loaded. Anyone who thinks we are too focused on the college season and it distracts us from pro tennis, I promise after this week you will realize that is never the case here at CR. With all of that said, though, let's get into today's show. Let's recap again what was a four ATP WTA Tour event championship weekend in the pro tennis world. Let's start with what I think is the most significant development because we knew how good Petra Kvitova could be on grass courts. Now, to see her healthy playing at this level, particularly given we've seen this level from her already this season in Miami, that's certainly relevant. But 
given the fact that Carlos Alcaraz had played six total matches on grass courts prior to the start of the week, given the fact that playing the event in London at Queen's Club was the first non-Wimbledon event that Carlos Alcaraz had ever played in his professional career on grass courts, it certainly feels like it matters that Carlos Alcaraz not only won the title at Queen's Club, he dropped one set on his way to the title and didn't drop a set after the first round at this event. It was how comfortable he looked. In it just uh, the ascending comfort level I should say we saw in every match he played and you know whether it was against Sebastian Corda he goes down an early break one love in that match. What does Carlos Alcaraz do? He responds with an immediate break back albeit in a sloppy service game from Sebi Corda and then doesn't get broken the rest of the way. You just look at the first serve numbers for Carlos Alcaraz throughout the course of the week won 75% against Rinder Kanesh, 83% against Lechechka, 69% against Dimitrov, but for what and you know, for what it's worth, Dimitrov probably had the most success of anyone against Carlos Alcaraz, throwing him that off-speed slice and just keeping that ball low and outside of his strike zone. Against Sebi Cora, he wins 84% of his first serve points and, again, wasn't broken after his first service game of the match. Against Alex Diemenauer, he only won 72% of his first serve points, but he only faced two break points in the match. Fought them both off. Four and four victory in the final. Dealing with the weight of his first forehand on this surface, it just pushes you back as his opponent. It happened for Dimitrov. It happened for Korda. It even happened for Dimonauer. And Lechechka is a little bit different because Lechechka did not play particularly well. There were just so many unforced errors in that Lechechka-Alcaraz match. I don't think either guy played their best. But, you know, in four out of five matches, Carlos Alcaraz, as he does on every surface, just overwhelmed his opponents with his arsenal of weapons, with the heaviness of that first forehand, with that ability to throw you off speed by mixing in the drop shot and good luck tracking down that drop shot and changing directions on this surface when he has you handcuffed and he's loading from that ad side corner. I thought he progressively looked more and more comfortable as a mover and whether it was the down the line passing shot he hit to get the break back against Dimitrov, whether it was the creativity and physicality of his in this 4-4 four four match against Alex Demon Hour. And credit to Demon. I mean, you have no right moving as well in a grass court as he does. And I do continue to think that Alex Demon Hour has progressed as a server this season, has progressed his arsenal of weapons. And it's interesting. He's kind of taken the Maria Sakari route. And in that, I mean, his first serve percentage has dipped. He's averaging a career low 56.5% first serve percentage this season. That's 4% below his career average. He's winning 72.5% of his first serve points. That's 2.1% better than his career average. That's 3% better than last season. Second best he's ever done in a single year following the 74.3 he threw in 2019. You can see you can see the difference tangibly via the eye test. He is going after that first serve a little bit more. There is a little bit more chutzpah behind the first forehand in the depth of every backhand that he hits. He also did a good job throwing in slices and change-ups at Alcaraz, playing the angles, getting the ball in the outer third, out-improvising Alcaraz with that exceptional speed. The difference is Alcaraz had the hammer. He had the first serve. He had the first forehand. He's so comfortable serving and volleying. I mean, his cuts on the return of serve are just so aggressive, and he reads the ball so well. I mean, the return... There were two ridiculous returns of serve from Alcaraz in the game. I mean, I keep going back to that quarter semifinal match because I watched that one extraordinarily closely. In the game, he broke back. I had this first game, of, uh, first return game of the match, 40-30, Corda hits a great first serve into the backhand. Alcaraz somehow just gets a stab at it. The ball is dipped low at Corda's feet. Corda hits a great half volley. He drives it behind Alcaraz. Alcaraz has to change direction, hit a backhand passing shot. It's a little backhand flick of the wrist from Carlos Alcaraz cross court to get things back to Deuce when he does earn the break point chance. Corda executes a really nice first serve down the tee. Alcaraz inside in for a winner. He breaks back. He's rocking and rolling. I don't care what surface you're on. Carlos Alcaraz is just good 
And, you know, again, for Alcaraz now, a ridiculous 65 and 13. He's won 83% of his matches over the last year. He's 40 and 4. He's won 91% of his matches this year. Kid just turned 20. 91%. Now you're talking peak Djokovic. Now you're talking peak Federer. Now you're talking peak Nadal in terms of win percentage in a single season. And, you know, those three and prime Bjorn Borg and maybe one Lendl season here or there, those are the only guys who even sniffed or approached the 90% club for a single season. And I understand Alcaraz didn't play the Australian Open. Alcaraz did not win the French Open. I am not saying Carlos Alcaraz is putting what Bill Simmons would call a pantheon season together, one for the Hall of Fame, one of those. You cannot forget it. You'll remember where you were. You know, again, one of the all-time, all-time great seasons. Got to get some slam titles for Alcaraz to qualify for that list. I am well aware of that fact. But in terms of all-time seasons for a guy 21 or under, put it on the list. Like, 40 and 4, and it's June 26th, and Alcaraz has won titles, what? He's played a grand total. How many matches, or how many first matches? Alcaraz has played nine events total this year. He's won titles at five of them. He's made the finals in six of them. He's made the quarterfinals in eight of them. The only time he didn't make the quarterfinals was when he lost to Fabian Marazan in Rome, and that was right after he had won the Madrid Masters title. He's 20! Like, he, him, and Al, him and Djokovic, the only two guys now through, whatever, six months of the season. It's Djokovic, Alcaraz, top 10 in hold and break percentage. Given the recent struggles for Medvedev, yes, on hard courts, he'll re-enter this conversation. But for now, on these natural surfaces, as the cool kids call it, Alcaraz is the guy with Djokovic. Like, it's those two. Obviously, Djokovic, given... He's won the first two majors, He and particularly here at Wimbledon, he's on a tier of his own. But then Carlos Alcarez is also on a tier of his own. And then you can get into a conversation about everyone else. And that is not a revelation. We knew that fact. We maybe didn't know it on grass courts. We certainly may have felt that, but now we know it for certain. Carlos Alcarez is just the real deal. He, The way he competes, the way he – his aggression – the athleticism, the ability to take your breath away. He is just once of those once-in-a-generation talents. And folks, 20 years old. He's 40-4 and at 20 years old. Buckle the seatbelts. Still be patient because, again, if he's doing this now, what happens when Djokovic is out of the equation? What happens when he's 23? 24 years old and any physical cramping issues or nerves from that French Open final dissipate with experience and with additional time in the gym, as you know, Carlos Alcaraz is going to put in. I mean, again, we don't have to fantasize about what it's going to look like in the future. He's that good right now. And what did we learn? If there was any doubt, Carlos Alcaraz is number two on the list of contenders heading into the 2023 Wimbledon. That doubt has been erased. He's just the guy of this next generation. And again, he's facing the guy of guys, probably the great, I mean, not probably, in my mind, I don't know why I couch it, in my mind, the greatest men's tennis player I've ever seen in Novak Djokovic, he still has that mountain to climb. But that's it. Like, he has climbed the rest of the mountains. He's won a major. Like, you can't even knock him there. He's got to beat Djokovic at a slam. I understand. That's the hardest task maybe ever to ask in men's tennis history, but Man, do we get to ask it of this 20-year-old, and boy, am I excited for the ride, of course. Carlos Alcaraz, again, winner in Queens Club, his first grass court title of his career, fifth title for him on the season. For Alex Diemenauer, first final since uh, Acapulco earlier this season, first uh, semifinal since then as well. Now, he's made quarterfinals. He made a quarterfinal last week before losing to the eventual champion Greek sport. He made a quarterfinal in Barcelona on the clay courts as well. Demon Hour now 22-13 and 13 overall on the season. He's quietly sitting at 16 in the live rankings. That's one off his career high of 15, which, by the way, is where he's at, at the po- in the points race. Has Demon had a good season? Lost first-round Indian Wells, lost first-round Miami. That was particularly disappointing given the fashion in which he won Acapulco, beating Tommy Paul, beating Holgaruna, 
Lost second round roll on Garros. Lost fourth round at Djokovic in Australia, but obviously that 2-1 and 2 scoreline was particularly daunting. Has 24-year-old now Alex Diemenauer had a good season? Good? Well, he won the title in Acapulco. That's a 500. Good might be a step... It's not great. I can say that. It's also not a bad season. Is it status quo? That's the question. You look for Demon right now here in 2023. Again, 21, excuse me, 13 overall. He's won 62% of his matches. Last year, he was at 65%. Um, 2021, he went 25 and 25. You look back 2019, he won 67%. I don't know. I'll say this. If this is status quo for his prime, it means he's going to be a top 20 guy for the duration of his career. It means more likely than not, he will not need a significant second job ever in his life because of the success he's having on the pro tour. Will he ever sniff tier one? I haven't seen anything this year to re-examine that conversation. And right now, I think the answer is no. I don't think Demon wins a slam in his career. But has he thoroughly been eliminated from that conversation? And again, him, Hachinov, Shapovalov, those were my make-or-break guys entering the year. I will say this. Hachinov is a success so far this season. Shapovalov is not a success so far this season. The book is still out on Demon. It's been good enough that it's like, I'm still intrigued. Like I, it's, I guess that means it's status quo. It's been a status quo year for Demon, but you look at just the grass court success now for him overall on the ATP Tour. You know, again, 24 and 15. He's made a fourth round at Wimbledon before. He's won a title on grass courts. He's now made, you know, title at in Eastbourne, finals in Queens Club, round of 16 at Wimbledon. It's about as good of a resume as you'll have at, you know, three of the five or four most significant grass court events and demons had a little bit of success at all of them you know other than Hala, i guess because he plays queen's club instead or like yeah i I would be surprised if he doesn't make the second i mean depending on the draw obviously but i know the seeds came out i don't remember where he sits he should make the second week and once you're in the second week you're just in the ball game and that's what be my anticipation for demon is that he would go ahead and make a second week of course you know again in terms of your semifinalists, I know we talked about the quarterfinalists already, but uh, Sebi Korda, healthy, into his first semifinal since January, was able to play four matches in a tournament for the first time since the Australian Open. Wins over Evans, Tiafo, Nori. He's made a round of 16 at Wimbledon before. Is he healthy? Nothing new to add to the Korda conversation because I went into that at the end of last week. If he's healthy, absolutely can make the second week of Wimbledon. And then look for a whole Garuna who in his career on grass courts across surfaces has played a grand total of seven matches. It was the first time he got a grass court win this week in Queens Club. Beats Cressy, beats Penniston, beats Musetti. I thought he played a good match in his 3-5 and five loss to Demon Hour. It was a really competitive second set after Runa sort of found his footing physically. He's still uncomfortable, but he has the skills. And I think for Runa, the expectations for Wimbledon should be round of 16. Beat who you need to beat. Hold seed, you know, when a more experienced guy gets a look at you, if it is a demon, let's say, in the round of 16, or it's a, I don't know, who's a little bit lower in the rankings, a Zverev, a Hercot, a Struff, those are toss-up matches. But it's a toss-up. And for a guy who's 3-4 and four in his career on grass courts, that you'd call that sort of match a toss-up speaks to just how skilled he is already this early in his career. And again, he's another guy who I just think he's a tennis player throw him on any surface. He'll find a way to survive. Those are my takeaways from Championship Weekend in London. Again, all guys, Corda, Alcaraz, Runa, Demon, they are all guys who can make second week runs, who can get to that round of 16 Monday that's just so enjoyable at Wimbledon because everyone plays. They all have the level. They showed it. Obviously, for Corda, it's a health thing. The other three guys, yes, it's partially the draw. For Alcaraz, the draw doesn't matter, but I think the other three guys, uh, you other than Corda, I think if you're Demon, Runa, Alcaraz, you all say, again, Alcaraz. If you're Runa or Demon, you say, if I don't make the round of 16, Wimbledon is a failure. And that, again, speaks to the level each of them are capable of playing uh, throughout the course 
of uh, uh excuse me each of them are capable of playing already on these grass courts but again that's everything I've got for you from London. With that said, I'll probably not spend quite as much time on the rest of these events, but let's move over now to Berlin, where certainly we had the most action in championship weekend as we were dealt that bonus quarterfinal round due to the rain. I'll tell you what, Petra Kvitova might have had to play three matches in championship weekend. She never looked wary as Kvitova earned title number 31. Let me say that again. Title number 31 of her career, her sixth on grass courts as she knocks out Donna Vekic, 6-2-7-6 in the final to capture the crown in Berlin, perhaps most impressively for Kvitova and why she looked no worse for the weary throughout the course of championship weekend. She didn't drop a set throughout the course of the week in Berlin. And look, the Nadia Podoroska, excuse me, one-in-one victory in the round of 16, write that one off. Fine. Don't write off the rest. Three and four over Karolina Pliskova. Four and six over Caroline Garcia. Three and four over Ekaterina Alexandrova. Two and six over Donna Vekic. She faced eight break points throughout the course of the week. She was broken three total times in 10 sets of tennis. That's Wimbledon-worthy stuff. And look, typically you don't read too much into one week of success, right, on the ATP or WTA tours. We see so many. I mean, the the parity, the levels between these players, the gaps are so narrow that on the right week with the right confidence and the right form, it almost is anyone's ball game. But for a Petra Kvitova, who you look at the track record, a two-time Wimbledon champion. Now, yes, that last Wimbledon title, 2014, almost a decade ago. But, you know, she's won grass court titles in what? One, two, three, four, five, now six different seasons. She's won grass court titles in back-to-back years, winning in Eastbourne, winning in Berlin. She's also shown a top 10 level already this season winning the title in Miami earlier this year. And, you know, you look at the stats leaderboard offered by our friends at Tennis Abstract, and for what it's worth, Jeff Sackman going to be joining me on the Great Shot podcast later this week, or throughout the, uh, later this week, excuse me, to preview Wimbledon, so be on the lookout for that. But Petra Kvitova right now tied for fourth in terms of most top 10 victories, excuse me, most top 20 victories on the season. And in a year of parity, there's a top three and there's everyone else. So I think top 20 stand is a more indicative level of success against players of your caliber than top 10 number is right now. Petra Kvitova 7-3 against the top 10. Rabakina, Sviantek, Sabalenka all have more victories. She's tied with Bencic and Haddad Maya with those seven top 20 victories. When she plays her best and she's healthy on a surface where she feels comfortable, surface, excuse me, we know the level Petra Kvitova is capable of absolutely has to jump up the list of Wimbledon contenders. She might now have to be in your top five, and obviously we'll do that podcast on the Great Shot podcast feed later this week. But to beat Vekic 2-6, and six, the first set, there was nothing Donna Vekic could do. She was on the stretch constantly. The first serve was just firing on all cylinders. I mean, Kvitova made more than two-thirds of her first serve in the final, and when she's making that first serve in the first strike, the lanes for that first strike are just so abundantly evident. Good luck. Again, it's a runaway freight train. She is a member of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Reminded us why throughout the course of the past week. I mean, again... Vekic put up a fight. Like Donna Vekic played really well. And I don't know if she's a top five contender, but you look for Vekic now, 34 and 13 overall in her last, uh, excuse me, you look for Donna Vekic overall, who is not 34 and 13. Petra Kvitova is 34 and 13 over her last 52 weeks. She has to be a top five contender, but Donna Vekic is 36 and 20. She's winning 64% of her matches. She reaches the final here in Berlin. It's her third final in the past year. Obviously, titles for her in Monterey, San Diego. Now the 500-level final in Berlin. She beats Rabakina. She beats Sakari on her way to the final. She had a lot of success on serve throughout the course of the week as well. And, you know, this is someone who's made a second week at Wimbledon, who has played north of 30 matches on grass court in her career, given the relative form and inexperience of some of the other top contenders, 
yeah, second week is probably the bar for Donna Vekic. I know she's currently ranked 20th in the world, even after making this final. And, you know, again, second week would be outperforming her seed. But with the weapon she has, that ability to keep the ball in front of her and change direction at the first presented moment to make an opponent particularly uncomfortable on this surface. Donna Vekic's first strike tennis isn't Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club territory, but it's still very, very good. It's in that Benchich tier of, I don't want to mess with it on the wrong day. You know, Vekic, a win over Sakari. I'm not going to beat the Sakari semifinal lack of success drum because you've seen the stat enough. You look for Maria Sakari. I guess I will beat the drum one last time just for those of you listeners who I perhaps aren't as attuned to tennis Twitter and just aren't aware of the lack of success for Sakari. She's 2-7 in her last nine semifinals. She's 0-6 this year in semifinals. If you include United Cup, she's lost her last seven semifinal matches dating back to the Fort Worth Tour Finals last year against Garcia. You look for her overall now in her career at the tour level. Maria Sakari overall in semifinals, 7-23 for her career had a nice stretch where she won three of four and four of six, but she's lost seven in a row now. She had a streak earlier in her career where she lost nine in a row. Look, it's tough. I mean, again, you look at who the losses are to. Sabalenka twice, Pagula once in three sets, Martic once in three sets, four and six here against Donna Vekic. They're close matches, but look, people are going to hold it as a strike against her. I'll tell you what. You make seven semifinals or six semifinals in a year, five if you uh, exclude United Cup. That's what keeps you in the top 12 of the WTA rankings. And you look for Maria Sakkari. She's sitting at eight. She's a top 10 seed once again entering a slam. Is she going to be a top five contender? No, she will not be. Should the bar of success be holding seed, making the second week, and if not quarterfinals, then further? Absolutely for Maria Sakari. She's too fit. She can play real tennis on this surface. And again, she's a top 10 server by hold percentage. She has the serve, the forehand combination, the willingness to move forward for it to be a real weapon. She is not a top five contender, but she should do well at Wimbledon if she plays well. I don't know if Ecat's a top five contender or not. I mean, to lose to Kvitova three and four, given how well Kvitova was serving, I mean, Ecat won 73% of her own first serve points. It was one break of serve in each set. That was the difference between each two. Petra Kvitova can play elite power tennis to take the ball off of Katarina Alexandrova's rackets, uh, racket. Sepalenka can do that. Rabakina can do that. In theory, Sviantek, regardless of surface, can do that in a different way. But other than an informed Kvitova, I don't know how many people are going to be able to knock this version of Alexandrova off center. She is really, again, 7-1 through the first two weeks of grass court play. You know, gets a win over Kudermatova, obviously, via the withdrawal. But beat her last week in the final. Uh, gets a win over Goff here this week. I forget who she beat in the first round. Sam Snow in the first round. It's just three real wins in a way other players maybe haven't quite accumulated so far. So the track record of success on this surface, I know she doesn't have the slam pedigree, but I'm keeping an eye on perhaps a second week run for ECAT and maybe not just round of 16, but do I think she's winning the title? No. Could I see her in a quarter? Absolutely. We're always dealt one funky quarterfinalist, and I really don't think it would be that funky if an Ekaterina Alexandrova, who, by the way, currently ranked 21 in the world, I don't think it would be that funky if she ended up in a quarterfinal at Wimbledon. Nevertheless, again, Kvitova, Sakari, uh, excuse me, Sakari, and uh, of course, Alexandrova knocked out in the semifinals. Vekic, your finalist, Kvitova, title number 31 of her career. Other quarterfinalists, by the way, Avanesian, who, again, a young Russian who doesn't have the profile of some of her other 21 and under uh, peers, 20-year-old Russian up to a new career high, 64 in the world, highest level quarterfinal she's ever reached in her career, getting in the main draw of everything she wants to play the rest of this season. And at her age, that's the name of the game. Von Drusova knocked out 6-1 by Sakari. I'm still buying Drusova stock. Garcia should make round of 16. I mean, you could say that about 25 players, maybe even 31 on the WTA side, but with her serve, her ability to dominate, again, she won a title in Bad Hamburg last year. And by the way, the free ride is now officially over. Caroline Garcia going to have to defend points the rest of the season. 
she should do well after this Roland Garros because, again, unless you have the ability to match her plus one pace as Kvitova did, good luck keeping pace with her holding serve on this surface. At a minimum, you're going to have to win one breaker to beat her, and that's just a good place to be given all the uncertainty entering this event. So those are my takeaways from Berlin. Again, Petra Kvitova has catapulted herself into the top five conversation given the result, as has Yelena Ostapenko following her run to the title in Birmingham. It's three straight years Ostapenko's done something like this. 2021, it was the run to the Eastbourne title. 2022, it's the run to the Eastbourne final. This year, it's wins over Potapova in three sets, over Krejcikova in straights in the final. That just has you thinking, hmm, if it clicks for Yelena Ostapenko again, seven matches, it's a lot to ask. Four, five matches, a run to the semifinals? I don't think it's out of the cards. And I'll continue to say, right now, Yelena Ostapenko, 24-12 and 12 overall. She's winning two-thirds of her matches, second-highest win percentage of her career, the best, of course, 2017 when she won the French Open. She's play- playing better tennis now than she did then. Just look at the stats, the hold percentage, 70.4%. That's the highest number of her career and about 8% above her career average. She's winning 66.5% of her first serves. Again, that's second best number she's had in her career, but she's making them at her first serve at a 58.5% clip. That's 3% above her career average. She's winning 4% more of her second serve points than she ever than her career average. There are still three-minute stretches where she'll make nine unforced errors in the course of 13 points and will build herself just as big of a deficit as she will quickly either work her way out of it or build herself a lead at another point of the match. But the, the stretches of success are a little bit longer than they were in the past. And the prolonged stretches of errors are a little bit more likely to be overcome than they were in the match. Now, there are still matches where the bottom falls out, of course, but I think Yelena Ostapenko, currently 17 in the world following this title, I think she's playing the best tennis of her career. And her weapons on this surface, I mean, every one of her matches, Potapova, who is rising up the list of another player, second week, that's the expectation for her at Wimbledon. I think she moves that well. She can play that aggressively. It's that fluid off both wings. She's that good as a returner on this surface, just has you pushed on your back foot. But God, if you give Ostapenko anything in the strike zone, or if she just gets a clean rip on the ball, points on her terms. And if that ball lands in the court, the point is hers from there. And... The the down-the-line prowess, the ability to hit the swinging volley out of the air to just take that extra half-second away from you, the aggression on the return of serve. Look, she's a member of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. I'm not going to make the analogy I always do about the house on the corner, Halloween, sometimes on, sometimes off. But it's on right now. And I really do think Ostapenko just turned 26 years old I just think something's a little bit different. It's a little bit easier to regain that top form, and she just disrupts. You know, again, no matter who's playing her, even Krejcikova in that final, you're playing on Ostapenko's terms. And credit to Krejcikova, who moved extraordinarily well, extended points, and made Ostapenko hit from uncomfortable spots, employing a fun arsenal of slices and short angles and redirects and just, you know, all sorts of different things. And by the way, Krejcikova is not just, you know, again, I don't think round of 16 is the bars for success for her. I, th- I will be shocked if she doesn't make the round of 16 or further at Wimbledon because you look at the way she just dusted through the Buxas, the Martin Sovas, Fruvertovas, Lin Zhu's of the world in this tournament. If you couldn't hurt her, uh, how efficiently she gets to her playbook, the plus one, how well she hits her spot on the serve, the depth of her return of serve, she's just well-rounded enough to thrive on this surface. But man, when Ostapenko is in form, again, she just takes the racket out of her opponent's hands. And this was a stark reminder. What did we learn uh, from Birmingham this week? It's that in-form Ostapenko, I think, is the best version of in-form Ostapenko than we've ever had. And, you know, again, it was a 6-4 and four match against uh, uh, in that matchup against Ostapenko, uh, against Krejcikova. Ostapenko was broken once. She faced... Three break points. She won 76% of her first serve points. But more impressively, she won two-thirds of her second serve return points. 
her she play elite first strike tennis and no surface rewards that more than a grass court and you've seen that track record of success when she's gotten hot for four five matches on grass courts now on ways to finals or titles the past three seasons prior to Wimbledon you look for Ostapenko so far this year again overall now 37 and 20 in the last 52 weeks 24 and 12 here this season she's won two-thirds of her matches made the quarterfinals in Australia beating Goff made the semifinals in Rome beating Krechakova, Bedosa, Kasatkina now wins the title here in Birmingham there's been a pocket of success everywhere and hopefully she didn't use the success too soon but the top level is there again the top level is there for Krechakova. Zhu Lin, it's just going to depend on her draw, but third round, I don't think she'll go further than that. Potapova is the interesting one. Again, I think I've made the case for 16 different players already making the round of 16, but Potapova's level is right there as it has been on all the other surfaces. And even if she doesn't make the round of 16 this year, just bodes well for being a top 10 player, not just top 20, top 10 player. Because if you can produce quarterfinal results on every surface, Ask Kudermatova how that works. Ask Kasatkina how that works. I think it could freaking work for Anastasia Potapova. Even if she's not elite on any surface, she can be re- – Pegula, ask her how that works. She can be really good on all of them and ride that to a top 10, top 5 spot in the rankings contention at all the big events. And I'm already ready to put Potapova as a Tier 2 prospect uh, moving forward. I don't know if she's going to win a slam, but she's just going to be in the mix for a very, very long time. And you knew that before Birmingham – David Kane would tell you we've known that for half a decade now. Go watch her play in the juniors. But it's been firmly ensconced in all of our minds, as David Kane would say, uh, that Potapova ain't going anywhere anytime soon. And watching how, again, another player who's just able to play her tennis on this surface, the ferocity of every strike from the baseline, how well she redirects pace, how well she changes direction. I'm in on the skill set, on the player, on the competitor that is Potapova. I don't care what the surface is. I think she's going to find success. So, again, credit to Ostapenko. She wins the title this week in Birmingham. Ostapenko, I mentioned, 26 years old uh, at the start of this month. She has now won six tour-level titles in her career. Roland Garros, Seoul, Luxembourg, Eastbourne, Dubai, Birmingham. Two grass court titles, a clay court title, Three hard court titles around the world. That's not Yelena Ostapenko. That power, it translates, you know, it crosses time zones. It crosses borders. Um, credit to Yelena Ostapenko. I thought she played a really good week of tennis in Birmingham. Last but certainly not least, uh, let's talk about the action in London. And it's crazy that an ATP 500 event feels like the event we learned least from. But does anyone feel differently about Alexander Sasha Bublik, after the 26-year-old earned probably the biggest title of his career in Hala, earning a 6-3-3-6-6-3 victory over Andre Rublev in the title match. Of course, he also knocked out Sasha Zverev, 3-5 and five in the semifinals. You listen to this pathway. Have we had a more difficult ty- uh, pathway to a title this year than Chorich, Struff, Sinner, Zverev, Rublev? On paper, that's as tough of a route as you're going to find. And all it's indicative of is Sasha Bublik's as good as he wants to be on any given day. He faced 5, 6, 11, 15 break points throughout the course of the week. He was broken four times in five matches. I mean, his aggression, his creativity, the serve and volley, the slice, the drop shot, the spontaneous redirection, the spontaneity of his game. You know, you really try to keep the ball in front of you on this grass court to help make movement a little bit easier. You feel like you're always on your back foot and guessing at what Sasha Bublik's going to do next. And this is a crazy take. I really think it helped him to play two Germans in Halle. I think he loved having the crowd against him in the Struff match. I think it got him motivated from the start against Sasha Zverev. And look, with this victory, Sasha Bublik now up to a new career high, 26 in the live rankings. He's 33 and 32 overall in the last 52 weeks. He's 17 and 21 overall this season. He began the year with an eight-match losing streak. He didn't win a match till Marseille in the middle of February. And by the way, at that Marseille event, he ends up making the semifinals there. 
I mean, yeah, he's earned what? Eight of his victories this year. Eight of his 17 victories have come in two events, and that's good enough for 26th. New career high in the live rankings, and that's because when he has his best weeks, finals of Newport last year, finals indoors in Paris, uh, in France, excuse me, in late September, you know, semifinals in Marseille, now this title run at a 500-level event in Halle. Even with all the first match losses mixed in between, and you look over the last 52 weeks, he's 14-12 and 12 in first-round matches. He's 8-10 and 10 here in the past year. Even through all of that, on the right weeks, at the right time, I've always said Bublik is curious with less press. He just, he has all the shots. Even his backhand f- technique and form is impressive. Yes, his forehand backswing is big, but the grip's not too extreme. The contact point isn't off. It's just shot selection. It's effort extended. It's focus from point one to the final point of a match. And Bublik had it in Hala. And with his game style, his physical profile, absolutely, if he wants to be, he can absolutely contend for serious results at this U.S. Open. And I know he's 20, uh, at this Wimbledon, excuse me, I know he's 26 in the world now. He will not be seated at Wimbledon this year. You do not want to face him if you're a seed in the first match. You do not want to face him at all during the first week because you're just playing on his terms at his pace with his serve. And look, it was a great week for Andre Rublev, who makes another grass court final first uh, since he made the final in Halle back in 2021. But, you know, to beat Greeks born three sets, to get a physical match versus Bautista Agu, to see the weaponry of Hanfman, another physical match against Ebing, uh, Wu Ebing in the first round. Rublev got exactly what he was looking for, a little bit of every game style here in Hala, and he made the finals along the way. Gets him back up to number seven in the world. Uh, You look for Rublev, it's his fourth final. It's a sneaky high amount here in 2023, even if he's one in three in finals. Losses to Medvedev, Lajevic, and Bublik. Those last two are funky, even if they were both in third set. Still, seven in the world, four finals. We're six months into the season. Making a final a month, you're doing your job right if you're Andre Rublev. Yeah, he's in the second week. Like anything less than a round of 16, you'd be surprised to see Rublev upset. Yeah, I, I mean, again, he played good tennis. Bublik was just breathtaking. The first set he played against Rublev was just, I mean, he just came out of the gates locked. And the return of serve is on the rise The against the angles he can find. He even moves really well for a guy who's 6'6". And again, these are all things we knew. He's as consistent as he wants to be, but he was consistent this weekend. And so he earns the title. Uh, you look for Sasha Bublik in terms of titles at the tour level in his career now. It is title number two. He won his first in Montpellier back at the start of last season. Eight career finals for Bublik. Not too shabby. Uh, Two titles now for the recently turned 26-year-old. Got himself a little birthday gift as well, courtesy of an ATP title and a new career high ranking. Gave you my thoughts on Rublev. Of course, your other semifinalists at this event. Look, Sasha Zverev just was overwhelmed by the power and the spontaneity and the aggression. And Bublik took it to him. And Zverev got tentative. He was on his back foot. He was never comfortable. It was one of those matches for Sasha Zverev, who I do still think at large, the three matches he played at Hala, I thought he played pretty well on the grass courts. He's another guy who you'd expect to hold seat at a minimum come Wimbledon. And then, you know, on the other side of the equation, it was a much-needed semifinal for RBA, his first semifinal again since he reached the final in Adelaide in the first week of the year. He hadn't won consecutive matches in a tournament since Adelaide the first week of the year. Uh, excuse me, since the Australian Open making the round of 16, so the first month of the year either. It was just a nice reset to beat Medvedev, to beat Nakashima. Didn't serve particularly well against Andre Rublev in the semifinals, but... You know, again, for number 23 in the world, 35 years old, hold seed. That's the name of the game. You hold seed, you're walking away with a paycheck pre-taxes that is darn near close to six figures before the decimal point. And yeah, again, you look for Roberto Bautista, 35 years old. I'm going to guess that I'm looking it up as I go. I'm going to guess he has made $17 million in his career, 35 years old. How His career prize money is... 
$16,645,531, 36th all-time leader in earnings. First of all, come on. That's why I do this for a living. Second of all, price is right rules. I'd actually be disqualified. So to those of you who bid $1, Bob, congratulations to you. You walk away from at age 35 with, I mean, pre-taxes, 16.6 in prize money, and that's excluding any money he's made from a Lacoste sponsorship, from a Wilson sponsorship, from appearance fees for various things he's done over the years. I don't think he's going to need a serious second job, folks, and that is all in life you can ask for is by the time you retire at age 40, you don't need a serious second job. And so, yeah, RBA is right where he wants to be entering this 2023 Wimbledon That's my thoughts on championship weekend. That's what we learned throughout the course of what was, again, an exciting second week of play on the grass courts. Now the action picks up again this weekend. We have Iga Sviantek returning to the court. You have plenty of other top players still looking to get more grass court reps under their belts. You have Wimbledon qualifying. As such, it'll be a two-mini break Monday. Now the podcast will be released way later, excuse me, in the day, but I do want to have another episode for you all so you all can get off and running on your tennis viewing this week as all of us again eagerly await the start of the year's third major. And with that in mind, one more reminder, if you're looking for Wimbledon preview content, our Great Shot podcast feed is the place for you. We're going to talk dark horses. We're going to talk contenders. We're going to talk Americans. We're going to break down the draws. We're going to look at this Wimbledon from every angle. We'll have preview podcasts. I don't know if it'll be every day leading up to the start of Wimbledon, but certainly Tuesday through probably Saturday at least. Uh, So if you're looking for Wimbledon preview content, the Great Shot podcast feed is for you. Of course, all of that content available on our website, crackrackets.com, courtesy of the tireless efforts of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who, as always, has a of an editing job to do day in, day out, making everything possible. A shout out to him, a shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, tennis-point.com, the promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products at the best prices in the tennis world. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.